No, in all seriousness, we are excited about getting back into things here. It's been a couple of weeks off, but if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 1. It'll be a second before we get there. And Greg and I were just talking about, as school teachers, and I'm sure those who've taught or do teach know what this is like, and probably in a lot of other jobs as well. When you come back from break, you just you almost feel like you forgot what you're doing. Like, how do I do this again? The yep. first day back, I'm always a little bit off. So uh, for those who are going back to work soon, who've had a little bit of a break, uh, we, we understand that, that feeling all too well. But Greg, can you open us in prayer, and then we will dive in and begin yeah. an overview of Deuteronomy. All right, well, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to be uh, back here in Sunday school to... Uh, to study your word specifically, uh, Lord, how we put our Bibles together and how central uh, the biblical theme of covenant is to that, uh, Lord, as we've been working through this um, this uh, this series, uh, looking at the different covenants in Scripture and uh, Lord, how they shape your plan, how they shape uh, all that you're doing and build on one another and get us ready for Jesus, Lord. We're we're just praying and, and with thankful hearts, Lord, that your plan is what it is and that Jesus is at the center of it all. Uh, Lord, help us today as we look at this book of Deuteronomy. Lord, such a, an essential and key uh, book in the unfolding of your plan in the world. Uh, please give Mark and I wisdom and clarity as we uh, teach through this today and next week. And uh, Lord, help us all have a better grasp of what you're up to in the Bible uh, because of these, these two weeks uh, in Deuteronomy. So we commit our hearts and minds to you and uh, just pray you'd help us know you better through the, all of this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, today and in a couple of weeks, our plan is to do Deuteronomy this Sunday and next Sunday and then jump ahead a large jump to 2 Samuel. And in, in between, we want to try to keep connecting the dots of all the books of the Bible. So we'll do some really brief overviews of some books, including right now, so just to kind of start, it's been a couple weeks off. Let's, let's remind our brains where we've been, what we're doing. We're doing a series called Progressive Covenantalism, which is how God progressively unfolds His plan uh, for His kingdom. It's going to unfold through His covenants. And we're looking at the six major covenants we've argued in Scripture, starting with Adam, then Noah, then Abraham, and then today we're continuing in the covenant with Moses, or also called the covenant with Israel, or the covenant at Sinai, and, and other titles for it. Uh, just, just as a reminder of where we've been, this will just be really quick here. The book of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve and the whole world, and Adam is in covenant relationship with God. He's prophet, priest, and king of God's creation. He's meant to multiply and fill the earth with God's image bearers, and Adam is our federal representative, is our covenant representative. He falls, and we all fall in Adam, and the world spirals down uh, through the flood with Noah down to Babylon, where you see lots of human rebellion. God, though, makes a promise He will not uh, ultimately destroy everyone. He will save people through the offspring of the woman. During Noah's day, God makes it clear He could rightfully judge every generation with a cataclysmic flood, but He promises through the rainbow, I will not do that. Uh, I'm going to uphold and sustain the physical world until my redemptive plan has come and the, seed cru the serpent crusher fulfills the plan that I have given it. And then we get to Abraham. This is the linchpin that holds the, 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 the book of Genesis together. God promises that through Abraham's family, uh, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then the rest of Genesis follows the promise through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph goes into Israel, and the promise goes through Judah eventually. We get to the book of Genesis, uh, to Exodus. Israel is in Egypt, and God gets them out through a great redemptive act. The first 15 chapters, they come out of Egypt. 
Chapter 16 to 24 is really when the Mosaic Covenant is laid. They get to Mount Sinai in chapter 19. Chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are given, and then all the stipulations are given in the following chapters, and they make a covenant with blood in chapter 24. The, the covenant with, uh, with, with God and Israel is, is solidified and, in, and enacted there. And then Exodus 25 to 40 is about God finally coming back to dwell with His people. Tabernacle instructions, the tabernacle is built, many chapters on that, and God's glory fills the tabernacle, but not even Moses is able to enter. Remember, not even Moses could enter. And so how do we enter back into God's presence? That's what Leviticus is all about. Leviticus talks about animal sacrifice, a priest that's ordained, ritual and moral purity. And through this system, especially on the Day of Atonement, we are able to enter back into God's presence through the high priest on our behalf. And finally, a human being is back in the immediate presence of God in that sense, in the Holy of Holies as the, as the altar, as the incense burns so that He doesn't have a clear view. But mankind is back in the presence of God through the blood of the sacrifice. And then you see here again more qualifications that come. The book of Numbers we have not addressed yet. I'll just do this again as quickly as possible. If you notice here, Israel has been parked at Mount Sinai for a little over a year, but it's a lot of chapters that they've been at Mount Sinai. You'll notice they get there in Exodus 19. They're at Sinai all the way through Exodus 40. That's a lot of chapters. Then they're there for all of Leviticus. I think that's what, 27 chapters of Leviticus. And then they are at Sinai all the way through the first 10 chapters of Numbers. So dominating the center of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is this time at Sinai where the covenant with Moses is enacted. The people begin to travel, the first traveling towards Paran in the wilderness. Here is where bad things start to happen. Israelites complain, God sends judgment. Even Moses' own brother Aaron and sister Miriam criticize Moses for the wife he took, a Cushite woman, and God judges them. They repent and God forgives them. They get to Paran, uh, I think that's how you say that word, and the, the spies go to, to investigate the land in chapter 13. They come back. Remember, 10 say, we can't do it. God won't even let us do it. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, the Lord will help us do it. The people go with the 10, not the two. And God judges them. Chapter 14 says, you will not enter the world. You will not enter the, the, this generation will not enter the promised land. 40 years will pass. And so if you look, chapters 16 to 19, 37 years go by. A lot. Really fast in numbers. We've been, so that's really quick. And then we have another travel, this time to Moab, near the promised land. In this, Moses' uh, sister and brother show back up. Miriam dies, Aaron dies, and Moses strikes the rock, and God says, you're going to die too before you enter the promised land. All three of them right there, and Moses still, of course, is alive. And then here, uh, oh, by the way, the serpent, remember, on a pole is, is in this text. The people complain, they're bitten by the serpents, they hold up the snake on the pole, they look with faith, and they're healed, representing Christ in the future. And then here, they finally make it to the plains of Moab. I told Greg, I got a few cartoony pictures here today. This is a cartoony picture. They've been wandering. They came out through the Red Sea. They came down to Mount Sinai. They wandered for 40 years through the wilderness. Now, finally, they've made it up here to the plains of Moab, which is just on the east side of the Jordan River, and they are stationed there for a period of time, and Moses is going to give his last will and testament, which is the book of Deuteronomy, to the people before they cross over the Jordan River and they take Jericho and the cities that come after that, uh, in, uh, th that come in the following books. So real quick here, Deuteronomy why does it matter? There's a debate about exactly which book Jesus quotes or re references the most, but certainly Deuteronomy is one of the most cited books of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, the prophets, I mean the Old Testament prophets, they will view the rest of Israel's history through the lens of Deuteronomy. 
It's through the categories and the covenant stipulations and the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy especially that the later prophets will rebuke Israel, talk to Israel, they will build off what Moses has said, and they will hold Israel accountable to the book of of Deuteronomy in particular. It's it's a huge book in that sense. And as I just said, this is Deuteronomy's last, uh, this is Moses' last will and testament. Nancy Guthrie uh, mentioned it like this. She said, imagine parents dropping off a child at college, and they aren't going to see the child again for a while. And maybe a charge or an exhortation or an encouragement that a parent might give to a child as the parent says, I'm going back home and you're staying here and please make the wise decisions with your life. Please do what is right. Please honor the Lord. And the, 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 the parent leaves. Well, this is Moses knowing he is not going to go with them into the promised land. He is going to stand there on the banks of the Jordan in Moab. He knows once he's done preaching, uh, he is going to be taken up by the Lord and taken to heaven. And so Deuteronomy is three long sermons given by Moses right before his death. It, it, within, within about 40 days of his death, he is sitting there, he's 120 years old, and he just preaches his heart out. The book of Deuteronomy is nothing basically but Moses speaking directly to the people. And these are the last words of Moses to the people. He then sings a song of Moses at the end. The Lord takes him up at the end of Deuteronomy. He dies, and then Joshua takes over leadership and uh, takes him into the land. I, I know that's a whole bunch of stuff. Greg, any other introductory thoughts about the book? Um, I mean, you did a great job, like, and the, the graphics are real fun, too. Um, <laughs> I love, love the pictures. Uh, pictures are helpful. Um, even, you know, we, we say we, we get out into adulthood and we, you know, picture books are for kids, but pictures are helpful help. for adults, too. Um, and uh, I underappreciated those for a long time. So it just, it helps you kind of locate where you are. So, uh, you know, pictures can be helpful. Uh, if you have a good map in the yes. back of your Bible, like, make use of that. Um, it just kind of helps you sit, helps to situate you and me uh, where things are at the time. So, you know, thank you for that. And I mean, too, this, this is a derivative thing. I'm not going to spend much time on it. But I mean, you think about Deuteronomy being Moses' last will and testament to uh, the people of Israel. I mean, this is, this is it, and, and he's gone. You know, it should make us reflect, like, what, what, what do we want our life testimony and our life, like, um, you know, not just how we lived, but what we said, you know, what... What do we want to impart to others, uh, you know, by the time it's our time to go? Um, you know, if we last as long as Papa Fred, we'll, you know, we'll, it'll be a ways <laughs> off before we get there. And I hope that's the case for all of us. But I mean, you think about it, like what, what would be the last thing you would say? And I mean, you know, we, we, we do this periodically and it's, it's, it's okay every now and then to say, you know, if today were my last day, what would I want people to know? My, my wife, my kids, my, my close friends, my family. Um, what, what would be the most important things that I would share and say, um, you know, and it's something to give thought to, um, you know, because we're, we're not, and I, you know, I'm not trying to use scare tactics or anything like that, but we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Are we making the best of our time today? Moses had a certain amount of time, and obviously in God's providence, you know, he was the prophet that God was using to give us the book of Deuteronomy. But what, what would you want to say that like today, if you have the opportunity with your family, are there things you'd want to say to make sure they knew, even if they ought, you know that they know, are there things you'd want to reaffirm and encourage uh, with your loved ones? And so it's something to think about, again, derivative from what Moses is doing, not, not necessarily on the same level because we're not going to be, you know, giving scripture, but, you know, what, what would we want to say to make sure we, we got the most important thing said. No, that's good. And remember in Scripture, I'll butcher the verse in Isaiah, but all flesh is gra- grass, its glory is like the grass of the field. The mm-hmm. grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. We are all replaceable. 
The Lord alone is the one who is unreplaceable and eternal. I mean, we are temporary, we are fleeting, we're like a mist, a vapor, we're gone, and, and uh, we should never think, like, even, if, even Moses can be replaced by Joshua. That's right? humbling, it, it, isn't it? That, that's a humbling thing. If someone is amazing as Moses with all his flaws, as, as great as he was, uh, we are certainly replaceable and we are dependent mm-hmm. on God. And uh, we, we also remember with that that God keeps track of all uh, that we do and will reward us for, for faithful, for faithful right. uh, acts in this life. Uh, real quick here, I won't spend long on this. The word Deuteronomy uh, is two Greek words. You have deutero, which means second, and you have namos, which is the word for law. And so deutero, namos means the second law or the second giving of God's law. So uh, what you see a lot of repetition from the book of Exodus and Leviticus. There are segments of those books that are repeated in Deuteronomy, but there, is, there are things that are added. Let me just quote here Peter Gentry, who we've quoted a lot. Deuteronomy is best seen as a renewal and expansion of the Sinai covenant. It's not a different covenant. It's a renewal of the Sinai covenant, because think about it. The original people who made that first covenant were the parent generation, right? And all of them have now, except of two of them, right? All of them have died, and now the children are taking the mantle. They're, they're pushing things forward as they enter the land. And so there's a renewal of the covenant because you've got a new generation, and there's also an expansion on the covenant. Here's what Gentry says. On the screen, he says, the, the instruction in Deuteronomy reshapes the covenant at Sinai for life in the land. There is a whole new context and situation, even though it is the same covenant. So I hope you see that as, as they're moving now into the promised land, like for instance, here's something different about Deuteronomy. It talks about how the king of Israel should function. Well, wait a second. We, don't, we haven't even talked about having a king. Where, where is that coming from? Well, Moses knows that that is God's ultimate plan to have a king. And so he says the king should write out the, 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 the law of God and be faithful to obey it. And God also speaks of a place for the temple. He says there will be a place that, we, that will be chosen. I will choose it and I will put my presence there. So th- there are these things that are looking forward into Israel's future. They won't happen for generations. But the Lord is already giving instructions for those as, they are, as they're getting ready for life in the land. Let me make a comment on that just again, just briefly. Um, you know, for us in terms of like ministry and, and stuff like that, um, I think what we see happening is you have the same truth that's being, you know, they're, they're like, like it, Gentry's quote says, we're looking at a new context, but the truth that's being communicated has not changed. So we always need to be aware of where we are um, in terms of life, in terms of people around us, culture, stuff like that, so that we can speak intelligently uh, where we are in a way that, you know, that communicates, you know, on a level that people understand. Uh, but the truth that we communicate never changes. Like, I hope that is so clear. I, I love the way Gentry says that. It's the same covenant, new context and situation, but the covenant itself and the truth that's been laid down has not and will not change. We never have permission to tamper with, to alter, to adjust, to modify the deposit that God has given us in His Word. Again, we need to be wise as to where we are and who we're speaking to, but what we say fundamentally never changes. That's good. I'm going to do this part quickly. It's okay if it it doesn't fully make sense. It's not worth spending too much time on. I just want to mention it quickly. I put three verses on the screen. Just so you know that Deuteronomy takes place most of it in a 40-day period. I just want to prove that just real quick. Deuteronomy 1.3 says, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people. First day, 11th month. Then we're told in Joshua, this is the next book of the Bible, on chapter 4, verse 19, the people came out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. So Deuteronomy begins on the first day of the 11th month, Joshua, the 10th day of the first month. 
Here's just a Jewish calendar, because uh, you, were, you were curious, weren't you? Papa Fred probably has this thing memorized somehow, I just have a feeling. So uh, first day of the 11th month would be right here, somewhere in the kind of middle of our January is when Deuteronomy begins, and then we're told 10th day of the first month of Nisan is where the book of Joshua picks up. So all of Deuteronomy has to take place in this window, and we're told that they grieved for Moses 30 days at the end of Deuteronomy. So if you rewind 30 days, you've got about a 39-day window where all of Deuteronomy took place which some people think it all took place on one day, because this may have been Moses just speaking all day, the, the, the content of this book. But either way, it takes place in a very uh, succinct and short period of time. I mention that because you see Numbers covers 40 years. Deuteronomy covers 40 days. It's, just, it's nice to know chronologically how these things fit together. So real quick on that, and then we'll look at an overview. There's, there's different ways to structure the book. We are bare bones simplicity here, okay? You can, you can quibble with this and that. I, I'll quibble with it myself. You can, you can say, well, what about this? What about that? I, I know, it's, it's too simple. But to, at the risk of oversimplifying, we'll just make it very easy for, for all of us here. Uh, if you think of Deuteronomy 1 to 4, that is looking back at the past. And what you're going to see is, Moses is looking back on the parent generation, and he's saying, we need to learn a lesson, which is do not do what your parents did. Now, a lot of us need to learn the lesson to do what our parents did, but this generation needed to learn, don't do what your parents did in the last 40 years. They were unfaithful, and they fell in the wilderness. So looking back to the past, chapters 1 through 4, part 2 is the present, you could say. Deuteronomy, this is the bulk of the book. Chapters 5 to 26, and you can quibble on exactly how we divide it, but 5 to 26 about is the, the main co content, and this is where the vast majority of the laws are given in this book. And man, if, you've, if you even just glance at chapters 5 to 26, you will notice that there are, I don't know the number, but there are scores and scores of laws and stipulations. Some of them repeated, some of them new, but they just go on and on. There's lots of important things for the, for the people of Israel. And then, uh, and you can see we split it into two parts. We'll talk about later, 5 to 11 and 12 to 26. Then part number three, you could say, is looking to the future. This is chapters 27 to 34. Again, those break into smaller parts, but essentially you've got 27 and 28. This is, this is how it goes. Israel, if you guys obey the covenant that I've laid out here, you will be blessed beyond your wildest dreams in the promised land. You'll be blessed when you come in, blessed when you go out, blessed in the field, blessed at home, blessed in the marketplace, blessed in your bedroom, your front yard, everywhere you can be, you will be blessed. And if you disobey Israel, you will receive the curses of the covenant. And then the Lord just gives curse after curse of what is going to come upon them, ending ultimately with exile from the land, defeat from foreign nations, and sent off in discipline. But the Lord does promise He would bring them back even when that is, even when that, the Lord predicts that that will eventually happen. So again, past, present, future is a little oversimplified, but that's just to kind of get, your, kind of get a, a bird's eye view uh, on that. And um, let me mention one other thing here real quick about the outline. Uh, so... In the, in the last hundred years or so, they've dug up and they've found other ancient treaties that other pagan people did between, uh, they call them suzerain-vassal treaties, between a suzerain and a vassal and how these things would work together, between a king that's over other leaders and how they would work things out. And what they found was, from around the time Moses wrote this in the 1400s BC, they found that there is a general uh, pattern in these ancient pagan uh, treaties, these, these covenants, that actually matches pretty remarkably the covenant that the Lord made through Moses, which I actually think is amazing because it fits the time period that Moses was living in, around the year 1400 BC, which is a remarkable thing since modern scholars tend to say 
That's not what it was written, but actually it fits, the, it fits the facts in that regard as well. But you have a preamble, the beginning. You have a historical prologue. Here's what happened in the past with the past generation like we talked about. Then you have general stipulations through chapter 11, specific stipulations with all the very tedious we would see as laws, very specific laws for many chapters. Then blessings and curses, 27 and 28, a document clause in 31, and then there's witnesses present in 32. So you see that the book is actually laid out in a way that a, a suzerain vassal treaty might be similarly structured in that time period. And the Lord, you uses that structure as a way in which he will, he will speak to his people. So let's look at the first paragraph here of the first chapter. Greg, can you read the first three verses? Yep. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, to the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. Now, do you see here um, the irony of what Moses is doing? I I, I gave the cheat codes here because it had to be pointed out to me at first to really see it, but I, I underlined the words here. The journey, so again, going back to the map that we just looked at, the journey from where they were to where they were going is how many days' journey if they were just walking? It's 11 days. It's an 11-day journey. And then he says, how long did it take us? 40 years. Moses is not doing this by accident, okay? So when you go back to it, he says, it's an 11-day journey uh, in the 40th year. Here we are. So he's clearly highlighting the rebellion of the previous generation. Guys, it did not have to be this way. It did not have to be this way. I mean, I, I can almost picture Moses saying to us, and I don't, I don't want to condemn us. We, we are not condemned in Christ. But I, I think there are times the Lord could rightly say to us, had you, even as a believer, had you gone a different direction, chosen something that I would have desired you to do, not chosen sin, think about what you would have avoided in your life. See, even Christians have consequences from our sin. Not condemnation, not eternal wrath, not eternal judgment, but are there still consequences for our sin? Absolutely, there can be consequences. Sometimes that lasts the rest of our earthly life in, in one way or another. So although we are not condemned, we need to know sin has real consequences in this world. And Moses is pointing that out. 11-day journey turned into a 40-year wilderness wandering, and it didn't have to be this way, Israel. Let us not be like that generation. And you see here, if you look at chapter 1, we won't read all the verses, but you can look over even the headings you can see here. Uh, Moses speaks about the refusal to enter the promised land when God first asked them to. And the generation chose not to. And then chapter 2, he reminds them of their wilderness years. And he goes on from there and speaks about all the failure of that, uh, of that generation. Now we're going to move into the kind of the main issue here. So let's move to chapter 5. Going back to our, our uh, outline, you could call this the present, Deuteronomy 5 to 26. And we're going to break this in half. We're going to spend a good bit of the rest of today, we think, here on chapters 5 to 11. We'll see how far we get. So Deuteronomy 5 to 11 is crucial in the whole book. Uh, The emphasis is to be completely devoted to Yahweh the Lord. And and you all can see this if you're looking at chapter 5. What makes up chapter 5 mainly? Ten Commandments, right? So this is the second giving, think Deuteronomos, right? The second giving of the law. The Ten Commandments are given again, not word for word. I mean, there was a few things, like the reasons for keeping the Sabbath law. He gives it slightly different reasoning. It's not contradictory. It's just complementary reasoning. But he gives the same Ten Commandments in chapter 5, which we know. 
But I want to point something out to you. And if, if you're suspicious of this, I understand the feeling, but I would ask you to test this. I don't think it's a 100% exact sort of outline, but I do think it's more than an accident that it works this way. This is from James Hamilton's excellent book, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. And again, I'll just point to the screen here for a moment. And a lot of people think something like this, you can quibble again over the details, but I think this is generally correct. So here's the argument. The argument is that the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and I'll just mention them, no other gods before me, make no idols, don't take my name in vain, keep the Sabbath, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet. These Ten Commandments are essentially almost like a table of contents for all the stipulations of the covenant that come from chapters 6 to 26. Now, it's a pretty remarkable argument, and it, they don't mean it's exactly one-to-one. Here's what they mean. The commandment not to have other gods is going to be the highlight and main emphasis of chapters 6 to 11, which is where we get commands like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does that sound like an, an explanation of have no other gods before me? Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be uniquely devoted to Yahweh. And then no idols, chapters 12 to 13. You have a central sanctuary and false gods, so it talks about those kinds of issues. The name of God being holy deals with the holiness of Yahweh, chapters 13 to 14. They would say Sabbath would fit in with periodic duties like seasonal issues and things like that. Uh, it's in the same kind of genre of law. Honoring your parents, they would say fits in with the theme of respecting all authority. So judges, kings, priests, prophets, all authority would be an expansion upon honoring your parents. You kind of get where this is going? I'll just finish it off here. Murder has to do with life and law, chapters 19 to 22. Adultery has to do with regulations on sexuality, chapters 22 and 23. Theft deals with property in chapters 23 to 25. False testimony mirrors truthfulness in chapters 24 and 25, and coveting, unselfish, leveret marriage, how you are to treat uh, with, in a case of a deceased brother, and how marriage laws work in Israel at the time, chapter 25. Now, you can quibble with some of the details, but can you at least see in broad strokes a real connection here between the Ten Commandments and what you see coming in the following chapters? So we're going to use that kind of format. We're going to jump into this section, and we're going to linger for most of our time today uh, on chapters 6 to 11. So Greg, can you uh, read for us? Uh, chapter 6, verses, I'm going to get lost here. Can you read verses uh, 1 through 3? Yeah. All right. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This gets a little complicated, and I'll just try to keep it simple, as simple as I can. So you notice I'm using colors, and you'll get lost, I know, because it's four colors, and it's going to be hard to keep up. But just, just, just try, try to follow this a little bit. I know it's a little complicated to do it just with one quick glance. But remember this format we keep using. God's, the kingdom of God is God's people, Israel, in God's place, promised land, under God's rule, all the Mosaic law, experiencing God's blessing. I will bless you if you obey the covenant, right? So God's people, place, rule, and blessing. And I've color-coded this thing to match with the verse Greg just read. So if you notice here, people are in orange, uh, place is green, uh, rule is in blue, and blessing is in yellow. So when you look at this, do you, mention, do you see here God's rule, the commandments and statutes and the rules? Is that God's rule? Yes. So we're seeing the kingdom themes here. Is He going to take them to a land? Yes. God's people in God's place. 
uh, under God's rule. Do you have God's people? Yes, you, your son, and your son's son, right? All these generations, all of God's people, and does God promise blessing if they obey that your days may be long in the land? And in verse 3, the same thing again. You have God's people, Israel. You've got God's rule, do these commands. You've got blessing that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, and it's going to happen in the, the place, a land flowing with milk and honey. So do you see here God's kingdom coming through covenant? You see, God's kingdom is God's people, place, rule, and blessing. Is God bringing His kingdom through this covenant with Israel? Yes, people, place, rule, and blessing are being unpacked here and expanded upon uh, as we move into these chapters of Deuteronomy. Anything else on that, Greg? Um, I want to make sure, I was thinking about this today when we think about God's kingdom, because we, we want to be as exegetically based as we can be. Like, we want to we want to draw our, our, our categories, our structures, everything from the text, and you know, you start to say, are we imposing that kingdom kind of schema on the text? I don't think we are. I think if you, if you just read in the Bible, and I mean, this is something like in any uh, place where you have like a, a nation, you're going to see, you know, you, 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 if you're going to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. You've got to have someone who's in authority. Otherwise, there's no kingdom. Um, you have to have a people over whom the king rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that, you see that clearly in the text. You've got to have uh, the, the rule itself, you know, what, what does it look like to live under the authority of the king in his realm? Um, and then you've got, um, you've got the, we said, let's see, people, place, rule, and, and the blessing. What, what happens if the people actually obey? Um, and, and so again, that, that's just a structure. It's not unique to the Bible, I don't think, but you definitely see it in Scripture. And so saying the kingdom of God, using that category, I don't think it's something we're imposing on the text. I think it's something that's just obviously there, Again, you see it in other places as well, but I think it's, it's a natural, you know, kind of drawing, organically drawing that out of the text. You know, we talk about kingdom. Again, that, that's a category and a structure the Bible itself is giving us, um, tying it to, as I, I love the color coding there. It, it, it really helps us see that that understanding of what the kingdom is, it is tied to the covenant. And it, once you have, this is one of the most important things. You know, it's like we talked about the, the box top, like when we, you know, how do you fit the Bible together? When you do puzzles, like you always have the box Wait, Can top. we ask how many people did a puzzle in the last couple of weeks? I want to see hands right now. Anybody? Let's we see, got one, one, only one. I am, it, I am ashamed right now. My, my daughter. Okay, a did, couple. Yes. <laughs> my wife, if she were here, would raise her hand. Um, that's always how a many big pieces. Thing. Oh, they did like several thousand pieces. No. Oh, they they go puzzle crazy. Oh no. With uh, with you know, my wife's mom and all that. Like they love to to puzzle. But, you know, you always have the box top right there so, you, so that when you're fitting the pieces together, you're making sure they're, they're creating the right picture. And so that, that structure of the kingdom, once it's kind of like let it serve as a box top, the, the um, people, place, rule, and blessing, you start to see it in the text because it's guiding you to see it. And so that's why I say, you know, I joke about the color coordination, but like it's actually really helpful because it helps you see that the, the text itself is making use of these categories and right. of these, these kind of key marker point, these key markers, so that it, if we know to look for them, all of a sudden when we start to see a whole lot more in the text, that's right there in front of us that we'll miss unless we know what to look for. So I think, I think that's great. No, I, yeah, that, that's, that's well said. So chapter 6 still, we have one of the most important texts certainly in the Bible. And let's look at <laughs> verse 4 here. This is such an important text for for us as believers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these are the words that I command you today that shall be on your heart. Now, just pause here for a second. 
This is called, in, in the Jewish world, this is called the Shema. Now, I, I do not know Hebrew, but I know that the first word here is the word Shema. So the word here is the word Shema in Hebrew. So Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is something that in the Jewish world, they say oftentimes twice a day. It's like a prayer that's said very frequently. But what you want to see here that is so important is the Lord is one is a massive, unique, stunning thing, not just today, but when it was said. What it means here is saying there is only one God. The Lord is God alone. The Lord is one. There is only one God in heaven and on earth. There's only one God. It is Yahweh. And so it is a stunning claim to monotheism, what's called creational monotheism, that one God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, made heaven and earth and everything in them. Remember, at the time this was said, they would get laughed out of a room for believing in one God, just like we get laughed out of a room for believing Jesus is the only way to know God. It, it is no different then as it is now. Everyone back then believed in pantheons of gods. Each nation had their own local deities, tribal deities. They fought against each other. Uh, when armies fought, it was like the gods were fighting, and the army that won had the stronger God. That is how everybody thought. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate. That's how the entire ancient Near East thought about religion and God and deity. No one thought of the one capital G God. And so this is an astonishing thing. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is God alone. He is one. He is the only God. And so we are to devote our whole heart, mind, and soul to Him. This is the point. If you believe in five gods, if Zeus is a god and Hermes is a god and whoever all, you know, you, you have all the Canaanite gods, you've got Marduk and all these other gods, if, Baal, if you believed in all these gods, then your heart would not be entirely devoted to any of them. You would have one-third of your heart to Zeus and one-third of your heart to Hermes and one-third of your heart to this other god over here. You'd split your heart amongst all the pantheon. But God says, I'm only one god, and monotheism demands one thing, singular devotion to that one god with all that you are and all that you have. So we as Christians should not make monotheism a mere doctrinal point in a doctrinal test, like, are you a monotheist, yes or no? That's not the point. I mean, yes, we should say that, the right answer, but the point is, if there is only one God, then there is only one being in all the world that is worthy of your worship, and it's the Lord, it's the triune God, we, we find out as Scripture unfolds, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three God, wow, blasphemy. One God, three persons. I almost just said three gods. I would have had to throw myself out of the church. That would have been bad. So <laughs> Greg would have picked me up and thrown me out right there. One God, three eternal persons. And so because we believe in this one creator God, we owe everything to him. And, and just mentioning, you know these verses, but the New Testament picks up on this, James 2.19. You believe that God is one? That's the Shema. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the, believe, the demons believe and shudder. So in other words, does our life correspond to the truth? that there's only one God, or do we just do it as lip service? 1 Corinthians 8, I just got to say here, is incredible. I keep standing up today. I'm sorry, I'm doing it again. So just, th this is amazing. Th this tells you how the Trinity just absolutely was there from the beginning of Christianity. It is not an evolutionary doctrine that like, it's not like 300 years after Paul, they invented the Trinity. Sometimes people try to make it sound like this. No, no, look, the Trinity exists when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and he wrote this in the 50s AD. Within 25 years of the death of Jesus, he writes this. He takes the Shema, and what does he do to it? He Trinitarianizes the, the, the Shema, if that makes any sense. Look what he does. For although there may be uh, so-called gods in heaven on earth, like there's pagan gods you guys, certain people believe in, yet for us there is one God, this is the Shema language, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He just took the Lord our God is one, and he took God and refers to the Father, the Lord, he refers to Jesus. He goes, yeah, we've got one God, and it's a Trinitarian God. 
I mean, Paul is already that clear. He put Jesus into the Shema. I mean, that's an amazing thing that early in Christian history. I'm saying after Jesus came history. That's an amazing thing to, to see that there. Greg, any reflections on the idea of the Trinity being so prominent early on? Um, what, just in like church history or something like that? Well, I mean, even, even here where like people will sometimes say this is a later thing that people are coming up uh, with. Like, yeah. like it almost I mean, developed like, by you, legend. You have to come to the text with a bias against the Trinity being early in order to to say it's not and find that it's not. When you actually, again, when you, when you have the right categories shaping your thinking, um, and again, the, the word Trinity doesn't have to be used for it to be present, mm-hmm. uh, for that, the, the, the idea and the reality to be present in the text. One, once you, um, if, if you don't allow like a, a pre-bias that says, well, it, it can't be anything other than later, if you get rid of that and you just say, let the text speak for itself, it, it's amazing how much you start to see. I mean, I, I tell my students this, it's like when it comes to the Trinity, you're, you're not going to find, again, you're not going to find the, the name Trinity in the Bible, but the reality of it is so clear that you have to deny reality in order to deny the Trinity because the Bible teaches it so clearly. Like you looked at in John 1, you've got other places, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, a uh, place like this. You look at Jesus' baptism, um, you know, where you've got the Father in heaven speaking the blessing over the Son, the Spirit descending, and the Son mm-hmm. there. It's like, if God were not Trinitarian, three divine persons, and yet one God, you can't make sense of the interaction mm-hmm. that's going on in a text like that. And I mean, that matters because um, I had a, uh, a conversation, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was, talking about like oneness, uh, Pentecostalism, yeah. and, you know, the fact that they don't see three divine persons, they just see three modes of existence, it's like, well, that's not how the Bible presents the Trinity to us, not how it presents the triune God. Like you see distinct persons who are each God, and yet there's only one God. And the conclusion is there's one God who exists and three divine, eternally exists and three divine persons. Um, and so again, you, you just, you have to work really hard to not be a Trinitarian. You have to decide ahead of time, well, the Bible can't teach that. And then, well, guess what? Like, you can twist the Scriptures to make it say whatever you want. But if you just let Scripture be Scripture and you let the text speak, it's amazing how clear it it suddenly becomes. Totally agree. And again here, familiar passage, Mark 12. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that, that he answered them well, asked which commandment is the most important of all. And we know the verse, but here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is just straight up quoting the Shema, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So you can see clearly how that is. Now look back at Deuteronomy 6. Let's, let's look at the implication of this, of this text. Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Look at, skip down to verse 20. When your son asks you in time, this is Deuteronomy 6.20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed us signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes, and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers, etc. 
Um, I want to spend just a moment here thinking about this. I love this text here. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Here's the point. In context here, and the application is so obvious because it's just do what it says, but think about the original context. The original context is this. Did we see a big difference between the first generation in the wilderness and the second? Yes, the first generation failed. The second generation was generally faithful, actually, as they first began to take the land. They still had issues, but they were more faithful than their parents' generation. And so here's what we know. Uh, you've, you've probably heard this before. Don Carson talked about this. Uh, they tracked this in history. What you often have is this, a three-generation loss of the gospel. Some of you all may already know this. Generation number one is when parents come around, they almost rediscover the gospel. They're thrilled by it. They're excited about it. They're talking about it all the time. They're loving the Bible, loving doctrine, loving the Christ, loving the gospel, and they teach it diligently to their children. And he said, what will happen is oftentimes the second generation, what they do is the second generation assumes the gospel. They're like, yeah, we know the gospel. That's kind of the boring stuff. We talk about all the time growing up. My parents won't stop talking, but we know all the Jesus stuff. But yeah, but here's what's exciting. And they take a second level issue or a third level issue and make it of primary importance. And they push the gospel out to the periphery. Does that make sense? So generation one, the gospel's the center. Generation two, the gospel's kind of old hat. Like, yeah, we, we, yeah we've heard that since we were kids. The gospel's, yeah, we know that. We assume it. It gets pushed to second level, and some second or third level issue becomes the primary issue, the, the, the main thing we're passionate about. And then the third generation has now abandoned the gospel. They've forgotten the gospel. And that second level issue becomes primary for them. And so on it goes. So the idea here is we need to ensure not just that we ourselves are faithful, but that those who come after us are faithful to the Lord our God and I know we all fail as parents, those of us who are parents, we, we all fail. We failed in a million ways, but we want, do we not? We want our children to know the Lord. We want our children to know that we are not complete fakes, frauds, phonies, and hypocrites. Yes, we fail. Yes, we are imperfect. But I want my kids to know that, yeah, dad had all kinds of problems. I can name a hundred of them. But I know that deep down, he really did love the Lord Jesus. I know he really did love God's word. I know he really did care about the things of the Lord. It wasn't just a job for him. It wasn't just like a paycheck for him. It wasn't just, oh, that's just his profession or something. I want my my kids to know that, yeah, dad, for all his flaws, he was real. And uh, he admitted his flaws when he messed up and, and he, he didn't always do things the right way, but he would, he would confess that. And he, he really did have a love for the Lord. I want my kids to see that in me. And then I want them to come to know and love that same Lord. And then I want them to reflect that to generations after them. So it, it's not just about us. It is a multi-generational thing. And we should pass on God's word to the next generation. Greg, what, what thoughts on this idea? Um, I, got, I have several. Um, first, relating to, you know, one generation, you know, they, they fight for the gospel, they love it, the second generation assuming it. Like, it goes to show, like, we have to be so intentional. And, and this is where we have to, um, we, we can't just rely on how we feel in the moment. Um, sometimes it's going to be hard to talk about truth. Sometimes it's gonna, we're going to want to do a hundred other things we're going to feel like doing a hundred other things, but we have to take the time to teach vital truth and not just the, the doctrine itself, but why the doctrine matters. Like why, you know, why is it important? Not just is the Bible inerrant? Yes. Why does it matter that the Bible's inerrant? What happens if the Bible's not? What happens if we lose that? Why is it important? Yes, the Bible's sufficient, but what, what, if, what if it wasn't? Like, like you, you have to like think bigger than just the doctrine itself, if you will, and say, why do we need the doctrine? What's the importance of the doctrine? What, what happens if we lose the doctrine? Like Again, nothing is an absolute guarantee other than the faithfulness of God that He's you know, ultimately going to save His elect and He's going to do that. But as far as we're... we're you know, we're concerned. We, we have to be intentional to put as much of the truth in front of our families as we can, discuss that truth, the importance of it, why it matters, what happens if it wasn't there, why we can't fudge on it. 
uh, and that kind of stuff. So we have to be very diligent with that and then trust that the Lord will work through that in our children um, and in others to, um, you know, to, to help them latch onto that and see why it's so important. Um, shifting gears a little bit back to... Um, Can I say one more yeah, thing? Go ahead. So, so just one last thing on that. Uh, and I know, I'm, forgive me for just talking about this too much. I keep mentioning Jehovah's Witnesses keep coming by our house. Okay? They came by again yesterday. So I, just, just a quick thing here. So these are two guys. Uh, one of them was an elder from Massachusetts who was in town doing teaching and training for Jehovah's Witnesses. So I'm like, this guy must be a bigwig or something. He's here at my door. And then there's another guy who's a local guy who's come to our house a few times. So th they come into our house. It's freezing cold. So we invite them in. We sit on the couch. And um, their wives were waiting in the car, they said, with the heater on. So that poor wives were out there for like 30 minutes while we're inside. So we're talking. And we went back and forth. And we won't, I'll talk about that some other time. But after it was over, they got up and left. And my kids were all around. You know, Kelly was trying to keep them occupied in the other room. But uh, my kids were kind of running in and out. And so they left, and so I, I turned to Micah and Molly, who can kind of understand what's going on. I said, okay, those two gentlemen who were just in here, I said, they're very nice people, uh, but I said, they claim to be Christians, but they are not truly Christians. I said, they believe that Jesus is a created being, that he's not eternal with the Father. He is a, he's the first and greatest created being of Jehovah God. I said, that is not what the Christian faith teaches. I said, we believe Jesus is eternal like the Father. He has never had a beginning. He was not created. And that's, the, that's truly what Scripture teaches. But I said, they were trying to talk me and us into embracing that faith, which is a false form of Christianity. Now, I don't know how much my kids understood, <laughs> understood of that. They're seven and five. But I, think, I mean, I'm trying to get Micah, especially who's seven, I'm trying to get him to kind of hear what's going on. These are real people who are nice and they are thoughtful and they remember our names and they can talk to you in a very nice way. And what they're telling you is a false Christianity that will destroy. And, and that's not what it looks like, but that is exactly what it is. And we cannot give into these false beliefs. We have to believe in the eternal second person of the Trinity. Uh, again, I didn't use that language when I was talking to them, but I mean, I'm trying to explain that in a way that a seven-year-old can, can understand. But you, you want to show that this is a real thing. There are really people who believe other things. We love them, but we do not agree with them. And love and acceptance are not the same thing. We can love someone and profoundly disagree with them. In fact, loving a Jehovah's Witness is only truly loving when you disagree with them on the Trinity. To agree with them and to acquiesce is to not love them but to hate them because it is not, it is not to teach what is true. So, so even they're trying to find ways where we can show our children there really are other people out there who believe very different things and we cannot follow them because Scripture does not teach that way. Well, I'll follow one more thought on that too. Um, you, people can be very sincere and very genuine and be sincerely and genuinely wrong. Yep. So sincerity or genuineness is not the test of truth. It's the actual content of what they're saying. And, you know, I think that's why what you did with Mike and Molly is so important. It's like um, you're, you're saying, look, because even though they are super nice and they, they appear very genuine and sincere, they're still wrong. And like we, we, we are in a culture today that is very scared to, tell, to say mm -hmm. this is wrong because it might hurt somebody's feelings. Well, they, they mean it so much. Well, you can mean all, there's going to be a lot of sincere and genuine people in hell uh, because they sincerely and genuinely believe the wrong thing. Um, and so we just have to be comfortable with, with, with the reality of that and, and not be afraid to tell people, look, you know, I, I, I see you believe this. I see it. It means a lot to you. But be, because I love you and I love God and his truth more than your feelings, I'm going to tell you what the truth is. Um, I want to go back to the other point, though, that I was going to make in, the nature, in, in light of uh, how we are to teach our children. Look again at Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 7. Um, and, and I'm mentioning this because we easily fall into the mindset. We've talked about this like with your quiet time. I have my quiet time now. I don't have to think about God the rest of the day. I checked my box. I marked it off. Um, we think, well, if, if I had a family devotion, 
um, at a certain time, whether in the morning or the evening, whatever. I've done what I need to do with my children. I'm not going to talk about God again. No, look at the way he talks about this. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The point is there is a culture of truth in the home so that no matter where we are, where we're going, we can talk about these things and we're going to talk about these things. Now, some days are going to be more full of that than others. Okay. I mean, if if any of you have kids or you've been around kids, you know, there's going to be times where they are nothing but interested in scripture. Dad, what about this? Mom, what about this? And, and like, you could go for hours on it and they just got question after question after question. Um, and there's going to be other days where, you know, it just, you know, you pray at the morning, you pray in the evening and and you're doing good to, to get that in. Okay. Um, so it's not like every day is like this, this pattern of, you know, we're going to fill this many hours with this much content. It, it's going to ebb and flow. But the point is, there's a culture so that if something comes up, if you as a parent say, hey, you know, this is something the Lord has really been teaching me through the word. This is something I've been learning. You just it, it's a natural flow to talk about. It. Or if your kids like doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, they you know, they, they can ask you these questions. Um, about scripture, about God, like you want a culture, an environment mm-hmm. where no matter where you are, what you're doing, you're talking about God, you're talking about his truth. And it's just kind of the, the air that you're breathing, um, you know, whether at home, whether somewhere else, we, you know, my wife and I, we talk about this. We, even when we're with people who, you know, you know, friends, family from farther away, we, we want to continue that, you know, that because that's who we are. That's a part of what we are as a family. And so we want the gospel to just come out and the truth of God's word to just come out. You know, even if we're around people who that's not familiar to them, right. that's not what they're used to, like my, my mom and my stepdad, like, you know, we, we pray especially for my stepdad. He's in terrible health, but we're also concerned about him spiritually. Um, and my wife did a really good job with this over Christmas break. Like just in the flow of our conversation, she does this better with him than me. She's, she's got a, she can handle that a little better than I can uh, with him. Um, and she just interjects the gospel, interjects truth, interjects the cross into that and our hope in Christ. And I mean, and it because, why? Because we talk about that at home too. Mm-hmm. And so it, it needs to, we want such an environment in our homes that no matter where we are, it's, it's just part of how we talk. And it's not artificial. We don't have to force it. We don't have to try to be something we're not. It's just part of how we live. And I think that's what um, Moses is getting at and God through Moses for us it needs to be the whole of our lives, not just one segment on a part of the day. It needs to permeate everything. Mm. Well, we are out of time. Can you pray for us, Greg? Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you for what we've already been able to learn in Deuteronomy, um, Lord. And, and what, man, there's so much stuff to consider. But I pray, Lord, that, that we would leave here, Lord, more convinced of the truth of your word, more convinced of the necessity of talking about it. Uh, with our loved ones in our homes and, and in other places as we have opportunity. And, and again, Lord, thank you that in all that we're seeing, this is all going somewhere. This is all part of a bigger plan and a bigger movement that you are, you are at work in, Lord, to bring the Savior into the world. And so, Lord, even as we consider these laws and all these responsibilities, Lord, and if we're honest how far short we still fall, Lord, may it lead us to the hope that we have in Jesus who has met every requirement, done everything necessary, both in terms of positive obedience and in bearing the penalty for our disobedience. Lord, we thank you so much for so great a Savior. And now please just direct our hearts to you in a special way as we gather as a whole church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.